listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I would like to go over our usual shout-out to all of our listeners. It is because of you that we are one of the biggest podcasts in Ohio. You have made us number two on Evergreen Network as well as number two on KillerPodcasts.com. With your help, I know we can get the number one. All you have to do is just keep doing what you're already doing. Keep sharing our podcasts with friends and family, and keep supporting us on patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Ohio Mysteries. Please also leave us feedback on our episodes. If you have any take on any episode, email us at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. And who knows, you might hear your feedback on an upcoming podcast. So, Let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories at the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Sometimes the real history behind an urban legend is so, so much better than the legend. This I will prove to you with the case of Charles C. Brewer, whose tomb in Cincinnati's Spring Grove Cemetery has long been a tourist attraction for ghost hunters. Spring Grove is actually a destination year-round for many reasons. At more than 700 acres, It's the third largest cemetery in the United States and a who's who of Southwest Ohio with a beautiful landscape of art and architecture. Those buried here range from madams to business tycoons to 41 Civil War generals. For obvious reasons, it gets a little special attention in the fall when people investigate some of the ghost stories and unexplained phenomenon attached to its permanent residence. One such stop is the grave of Charles C. Brewer, who died in 1908 and is buried beneath an obelisk that includes an incredibly detailed 3D bronze bust of the man himself that pops out from the front of the stone seven feet above the ground. According to several sites on the internet, here's the urban legend that draws people to this very unique monument. It has been said, and repeated for decades, that Brewer was an optometrist who requested that after his death, his eyes be removed and encased in glass so that he could keep an eye on things around his final resting place. His orders were followed, and those glass eyes are so lifelike, it looks like Brewer is indeed following every visitor who strolls about his grave. Well, anyone who would have the vanity and the money to put a detailed sculpture of himself over his coffin must surely be an interesting character. So I figured I'd do a little research. And oh boy, did we hit the jackpot. Charles Brewer was not an optometrist. Turns out he was a millionaire real estate investor with a hair-trigger temper who became so determined not to pay a $3,500 jury award to a man he had assaulted 
that he spent the next four years methodically destroying his own life. He literally brought himself to financial ruin, wrecked every personal relationship he had, then ended up in jail before dying in an insane asylum. His cause of death never publicized. So, just in case you want to give Brewer's graveside bust a look, and even if you never do, here's his story, a life unparalleled for its intentional spiral into darkness. We'll move quickly through most of Charles Brewer's life because not much was written about those early years. We know he was born in Germany in 1845 and at some point emigrated to the United States and settled in the Cincinnati area. He earned his wealth as a capitalist. By definition, that's a person who uses their wealth to invest in trade and industry with the sole purpose of growing those dollars. And apparently, he was very good at it. Among his holdings were several buildings in downtown Cincinnati, which he rented to a variety of commercial and industrial tenants. At the turn of the century, he was one of the wealthiest men in the city, his net worth at a million dollars. A million bucks in the year 1900 is the equivalent of about $35 million today. Brewer was also married three times and widowed twice. He had three children by his first wife and two daughters by his second wife. We're going to zoom ahead to the year 1904 when Brewer was 59 years old because, best as I can tell, that's when these dominoes started to fall. By this time, Brewer's first three children were all adults and living in Cincinnati's Mount Airy neighborhood. Brewer still had with him his two minor daughters, Helen and Ruth. That year, a man named Franks, who was a salesman for a suspenders factory that was located in Cincinnati's textile building, visited Charles Brewer, who had his office in the downtown Franklin building. That was a five-story structure that Brewer had built and rented out. For whatever reason, the visit did not go well. Brewer attacked Mr. Franks and injured him, and Franks sued. Brewer decided one way to protect himself from potential liability in that case would be to marry his housekeeper, Georgia Lee Golson, and put the deeds from his properties into her name. In the case of his Franklin building, which sat at the corner of 3rd and Plum Streets, he put that into a trust for his daughters Helen and Ruth, and he named Georgia Lee, their new stepmom, as the trustee for that property until the two girls came of age. Brewer and his third wife also moved into a rented apartment across the Ohio River in Newport, Kentucky. I'm not sure why. Maybe he thought being outside of Ohio protected him in some way. 
Now, we're going to get back to that lawsuit in a minute, but I've got to move on to Brewer's marriage to Georgia Lee because while he might have thought it was a financial strategy, it's going to cause even bigger problems. Ruth and Helen, both young teenagers now, did not get along with their stepmom. They fought relentlessly, and Brewer decided to teach his daughters a lesson. One day, the girls went to stay with a friend, and in their absence, Charles and Georgia Lee ran away. They moved everything out of their home, and when the girls returned from that short stay with their friend, they found one small bed, two chairs, and not a word about where their father had gone. They had been abandoned. Neighbors fed the girls, who remained in the bare-bones apartment for a time while authorities searched for the brewers. Eventually, Charles and Georgia Lee turned up. They were in Cincinnati, and Brewer purchased a new palatial home on Ludlow Street in the city's affluent Clifton neighborhood. So, the Ohio Humane Society hauled Brewer into juvenile court, and there, Judge Caldwell ordered Brewer to pay his daughters $50 a month in support. Brewer, by the way, became so angry at Judge Caldwell that when the judge came up for re-election, Brewer hired a buggy to scatter circulars all over town and try and poison his campaign. That's how vindictive Brewer was. Anyway, there was no hope of reconciliation between Brewer and his daughters, so the girls were set up at a place called the Lawrence Home for Working Girls at 3rd and Broadway in Cincinnati, and they were taught stenography so that they could find work. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers Stay Clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. Save big money at to that civil case involving the salesman, Mr. Franks. Remember, it was Brewer's fear of losing a verdict to Franks that had started Brewer down this crazy path. 
During the trial, Mr. Franks described to the jury how he lived in fear for his very life because Brewer was stalking him, sometimes standing outside the textile building waiting for Franks to leave work. The jury was moved enough by this story that they awarded Franks $3,500. Brewer appealed the verdict, and he won a temporary victory when the state Supreme Court sent the case back to the lower court to be retried. But in the second trial, the jury again found Brewer liable, this time awarding Franks $9,900. Brewer was also mired in two other court cases by now. He had been arrested for striking the engineer of one of his buildings on the head, cutting his scalp. And in another incident, Brewer had sued a man named Jacob Baum, accusing him of stepping on his foot on a streetcar, leading to a fistfight. Brewer wanted Baum to pay him $10,000 for the kerfuffle. And so Baum countersued Brewer, asking for an equal award. All of these lawsuits were making some of Brewer's creditors very nervous. The company that held the mortgage on a commercial property that Brewer owned at 3rd and Lawrence Street foreclosed on him, fearing they might not get their money back if they didn't move quickly. Likewise, and for the same reason, the people that held the mortgage on Brewer's residential home called in their loan. Brewer was quickly becoming cash poor. But it was his bitterness toward his teenage daughters that really accelerated his decline. In 1908, Helen Brewer turned 18. That entitled her to a share of the commercial Franklin building that her father had put in her name back when he was trying to protect his assets from all those lawsuits. Brewer had tried to undo that trust to take the Franklin building back, but that had failed. And so he allowed the building to become vacant. The court told Brewer, get some new tenants in there so his daughters were earning an income from the property. But he ignored that order. So in January of 2008, the judge appointed the Union Savings Bank and Trust Company as receiver of the Franklin Building and charged them with getting some tenants in there and turning it into an income-making property for Helen and Ruth. Ruth, remember, is still underage at this time. And so, on January the 16th, bank clerk John Sloan went to Brewer's office and got the key to the Franklin building. Then he went to the office building to look things over and make sure it was suitably secured. And in his dimly lit tour of the building, he noticed a small flickering light at the bottom of an elevator shaft. 
Well, Sloane knew the building was supposed to be deserted, so he went to the basement, and there he found a lighted candle in the stopper of a gallon can filled with kerosene oil. And attached to that can, a hose that led three feet away to a pair of dynamite sticks. Sloan blew out the candle, which was already half burned by then, called his supervisors at the bank, and they appointed a night watchman to look after the building, just in case the culprit who set the bomb came back to find out why it hadn't gone off. In the morning, they then called the fire department. When fire investigators arrived, they found the padlock of a back door had been broken open. They went inside and found the dynamite was missing. They conducted a quick search of the property and found the dynamite and all the unassembled parts of the bomb plot tucked into a basement closet. At first, fire investigators wondered if maybe the sticks were some kind of hoax. So they took them to the Austin Powder Company and asked an expert who said, Oh no, this is the good stuff, highly explosive, typically used for quarry work. Given the condition of the candle, they estimated that in less than an hour, the candle would have reached the kerosene, ignited the fuse that led to the dynamite, and that the bomb would have forced flames up through the elevator shaft to every level of the building. Not only was it enough to destroy the structure, but would probably have ruined other businesses in the area and quite possibly injured or killed somebody. There was plenty of evidence that Brewer himself was the man who had set it all up. Because that night watchman who had been set to watch the building after the clerk had found the candle said he had seen Charles Brewer leaving the building that morning. He just hadn't thought anything of it. Police also learned a clerk at Harvey Kramer's grocery store just next door to the building had sold that same candle to Brewer. And they found another clerk from the Bushels family shop down the street that said Brewer had asked to borrow their hatchet in the early morning hours that night, that he had forgotten his keys to the building and needed to get in. They loaned it to him, and he returned it to them later that morning. So Cincinnati police issued a warrant for Brewer's arrest. He was picked up the next morning by a patrolman who found him at 5th and Ray Streets, leaving his attorney's office with his wife at his side. As the brewers and the patrolman waited for a patrol wagon to come and pick Charles up, the patrolman saw Brewer pass a wrapped package to his wife. He quickly confiscated it, looked inside, and found a loaded thirty-two caliber revolver. Brewer insisted he needed the gun to defend himself, that a coal driver had threatened his life a year earlier. But all he succeeded in doing was getting a charge of carrying a concealed weapon added to his rap sheet. Brewer denied any connection to the dynamite. He said, I have no idea how it got there. I never saw a stick of dynamite and don't know what it looks like. It must have been done by some of my enemies. 
Then he told police some unknown assailant had fired a shot at him and his wife at their home a few nights earlier and missed his wife's head by a few inches. Surely it must be related, he said. But authorities were not buying it. They were convinced that Brewer had just demonstrated he would rather blow up his own building than see it given to his daughters. Brewer was released on a $2,000 bond, but he would not make it to his trial. That July, cracks in the veneer of his sanity started growing. His wife, Georgia Lee, suggested they move to California and put a lot of distance between them and the mess that their lives in Cincinnati had become. But that didn't work out. And one day, Brewer disappeared from his home in Clifton. He was found a week later, wandering the streets of Galleon, Ohio, 165 miles away. He was taken to probate court, where the judge feared he was trying to skip bail. Georgia Lee convinced the judge to let her have her husband, that she would place him in an asylum. First, however, she took him home. Charles had taken $1,600 from her before he went to Galleon, and she wanted to know where that money was. An argument broke out. Charles attacked his wife. But during the fight, Charles fell hard against a heavy oak table, striking the edge of his face and splitting his head open. Georgia Lee escaped and called police, and they arrived to collect Charles for the asylum. He was covered in blood, his beard matted, his face purple with bruises. He acted docile enough as they cuffed him and walked him out of the house. Then he asked for a favor. Could he please change out of his bloody clothes? The arresting officers agreed and let go of their grip. And just like that, Charles ran back into his house and barred the door. The police called for reinforcements, and when they finally broke in, Brewer had retreated to the attic and barricaded himself inside. He kept brandishing a heavy pick handle out the window and threatening anyone who would attempt to take him. Eventually, Georgia Lee coaxed him into opening the door just enough so she could come in and join him. And that's when officers used the opportunity to rush inside and retake Brewer. A judge declared Brewer to be completely insane by now and committed him to Longview Asylum. One month later, on August the 20th, Brewer was dead. He was 63 years old. We don't know the cause of his death. There was no news article announcing it, nor any obituary that I could find. All I found was a classified announcement from his wife 
thanking people for their sympathy. She even thanked her stepdaughters, Helen and Ruth, quote, for their sweet sympathy, flowers, and the prompt execution of their father's wish in the return of their mother's ashes and permitting them to be interred with him. Later, it was revealed that Brewer may have been planning his own death. The day before the bomb plot was discovered, he'd sent a suicide note to the Hamilton County coroner and another to his attorneys. When they found those letters, they rushed to his home and found him alive and well, and he denied he had ever written them. Brewer had planned every detail of his funeral. He had paid for and ordered his monument, his embalming, his flowers. He'd even purchased his and his wife's coffins. This is not all that unusual today, but in the early 1900s, it was a brand new fashion trend among the rich. In the spring of 1908, and this was even after the bombing plot had been discovered. Brewer was interviewed for a feature story about the trend, and the story ran in newspapers all over the country. He talked about how he and his wife had two metallic coffins resting beneath their beds. The $500 caskets were of heavy, solid mahogany, lined with copper, and prepared for hermetic sealing. He told a reporter that the coffins would keep him and his wife in their natural state for many centuries. At first, he had allowed the funeral home to store the caskets, then decided they'd be more secure at home, so they tucked them under their beds. Why shouldn't I be prepared? Brewer had told a reporter. This was just months before his death. I am living well now and want to be assured that I'll be buried right when I am dead. I don't care about all the fuss generally made at funerals. What I want most is to be well housed under six feet of earth and not be put away in a flimsy coffin that returns to dust in a few months' time. Well, we don't know if those hermetically sealed coffins are keeping Brewer fresh in his death a century later. But he certainly wanted people to notice that sculpture of him, that bust he had paid handsomely for. And for that, at least, he got his wish. I wish we weren't so far from that cemetery. I mean, I'm looking at pictures, and it looks like a very cool place to spend the afternoon. So while we're talking, I looked up those 41 Civil War generals buried there. That's a crazy number of generals. What did you find out? Some names I recognized. Robert McCook of the Fighting McCooks and General Joseph Hooker. Oh, I know those names. But this what was interesting. Forty of the generals fought for the Union, but there's a Confederate general that's also in there. Really? Anybody we would know? Uh, probably not. Philip Nolan Tuckett of Texas, who was appointed Brigadier General in 1863. Does it say why he might have been buried in Ohio? Well, Wikipedia says he was 
a doctor and lived in Cincinnati as a young man till he went to Texas and he joined the Confederate Army. Then, when he got old and sick, I guess he returned to Cincinnati where relatives looked after him until he died. You know, there's got to be a story behind every grave in that cemetery. I believe it. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. I promise you will not be disappointed. Paula has put a lot of work into that page. You'll be able to find any of the episodes you are looking for, any of our Akron Beacon Journal crossovers. We'll see you here Wednesday, and then we'll see you back here next Sunday for another episode as well. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.